honor to and pleasure to be to be here. That's where I wrote like kind of a huge chunk of the book. Uh, that happens to be like a very early draft of the book itself as a default um, dissertation. And um, so whenever I present, I'm kind of always quite nervous. Um, and I always have in mind a piece of advice that David gave me as a, as a supervisor. David, you might not remember it. Uh, we were in Uppsala, uh, Ikas, I was very nervous. And you told me, think yourself as a rock star. And uh, I don't think myself as a rock star, David. Uh, I think myself rather as an unknown country music singer. But uh, on that note, I will do some of my oldies, uh, some of my new bits from my new album. Um, I hope you like it. Um, so, um, I recorded the life histories of Ibrahim, and highly I will introduce him in a bit. Ibrahim is 39 and 49, uh, highly 49, through dedicated sessions of a span of nearly uh, nine years. And I often thought that I was able to create an extensive timeline of their life experiences. However, any session I had with them often end up completely reshuffling the succession before and after I had previously sorted. In, our, in one of our sessions in 2013, uh, faced with my visible frustration, Ibrahim smiled at me in a very mischievous look and um, admitted they actually had had a very intense and, and long life. So when I recounted my own life to Ibrahim and Haile and people you will hear about uh, today, I needed to face the fact that my own personal history, namely revolving around schooling and for a period of political activism, had been neither long uh, nor intense. In the eyes of my informants, indeed, I had, have, had led a very short life. Ibrahim instead, the person you see, is not his real name, but his real, this is real him. Uh, please don't take pictures of the picture. Um, so Ibrahim's life has been quite long and intense. When I met Ibrahim in 2010, he was in his early 30s. He had recently got a job as a car attendant, or as people say now, the suburb of a parking guy in a cooperative the local government office uh, had established for the unemployed youth. And this initiative was not a localized one, was part of a broader attempt by the government to recapture the youth that supported the opposition parties in the 2005 election and participated in riots and demonstrations that year. On top of his job, Ibrahim made extra money by brokering the sales of second-hand mobile phones. But in the past, they had multiple engagement with both uh, wage labor and the informal street economy. He'd been a street fighter, a skillful hustler, and a thief, a manager of video houses, a construction worker, a guard, an assistant carpenter, a stone worker, and for a short time, successful uh, shoe seller. Ayla, um, the second kind of protagonist of the book, also claimed to have lived a very intense life. He had been a student until 14 years of age, then a, a pickpocket, a burglar, a daily laborer, a construction site. With the collapse of the socialist regime, the, the Derg, in the 19 1991, uh, he tried to make his way out of the country. At the age of 22, he spent nine months as a refugee in Kenya, uh, trying to pass himself as a fake Falasha, an Ethiopian Jew, to be repatriated in Israel. But then when he realized this is not going to work, he returned to others. A new succession of possible lives followed. He worked as a manager of video houses. Then he got busted because he was showing porno movies. At the time, it was illegal. Then enlisted as a soldier in the 1998-2008 Ethiopian Eritrean War. 
And after the war ended, he returned to Addis, and however his status of veteran didn't help him to you know, have, a, have a job and new opportunities, so he found himself hustling on the streets again. And after then, after a few years, he was invited to join a government-supported cooperative producing concrete blocks for construction sites. Uh, and this work lasted for a, la for a while, until then the cooperative closed because government was not giving them contracts. And eventually, when I met him, he, was, he, jo he just joined the cooperative parking guys uh, to support himself and his son. Um, so, how can we examine, narrate, and understand uh, a life? And how, as anthropologists and scholars, can we appreciate the complex intertwining of becoming, meaning, politics, and history, and everyday life we're often after by taking life and living like such, those ones of Haile Ibrahim, as a matter of our ethnographic uh, investigation. And Hannah Harent expressed their concerns with the actual ability of the philosopher, the scholar, or rather the storyteller, to say something meaningful, she writes, on who somebody is. Our vocabulary, she wrote, leads us astray to say something of what is, and not who somebody, or the somebody is. So a solution is to make sense of the tension that exists between the uniqueness of a life story, as the birth of a newcomer, she wrote, contains the seeds of a new beginning, and the fact that the potentialities of such a new beginning are affected and situated by a range of relationships in which life is experienced. So ethnography has a valuable tradition in writing of life trajectories and exploring the tensions between individualities and social relationships and historical constraints. However, what to make of the lived experience is still a very open question. And I would argue that we need to go back to our unharmed question on definition of who somebody is, looking at how people conceptualize and experience the intimate relations between life and the self. So my informants use two terms to make sense of this. One is Pahri, which is a unique character of an individual. Uh, knowing one's unique character, however, is not a matter of introspection. It, the, the kind of the Bahri is knowable through others, in particular to the ways other people describe you and how you relate to them. Tabai instead is uh, what people have become through the experiences of life. Uh, you are what you have lived, but also you can become what you have not lived yet. So being is not an essence or stable position, but it's realized in practice and rework to a process of endless becoming. So this understanding of it's not just existential philosophy or cheap psychology, but it's an understanding of life trajectories that there's a long history in, in Ethiopia, especially in the Northern Islands, where many communities have conceptualized life of an individual as a continuum of social experiences and not as a sort of well-defined succession of, uh, of stage, uh, life stages. So in the experience of my informants, the seeing life as a continuum also resulted in appreciating life as an open moment. So this argument, again, sounds like kind of existential philosophy, but as Jean and John Comerf pointed out, vernacular understanding of life and personhood might indeed converge with tradition of philosophical thoughts. And Ibrahim did call our afternoons talking about his life experiences as our philosophy days. Nevertheless, seeing life as an open moment is not just a matter of intellectual sophistication, it's also an ethnographic fact. In particular, in the ways of searching for an open end uh, can be seen, experienced, and understood uh, by those we write about uh, as something um, central in the way they understand their own experience. So how do we account for 
these people search for open-endedness? How do we turn our ethnographic appreciation of single individual searches for open-endedness into an entry point to understand politics, uh, history, um, uh, meaning, meanings, and, and contingency? But also, how can an ethnographic ap uh, appreciation of, of life and open-endedness guide our critical appraisal of the present, as well as find anthropological contribution to the possibilities of a more just futures? So my wider work seek to answer these questions. The book provides all the answers, so buy it. It's rather cheap. But today, so I will seek to explore a bit, um, um, or try to make three fundamental points. Um, the first is that uh, we need to rethink how we understand marginality. In particular, our tendency to rely on cunning phrasing. I also put this picture of this kind of handsome man. Uh, so the kind of our tendency to rely on cunning phrasing, analytical style, to find how to assume that whatever marginalized do, they tend to reproduce their condition of marginality through their own actions or even through forms of resistance. This is a kind of very dated kind of way of looking at it, but it's still very uh, uh, common in the way anthropologists tend to understand marginality and exclusion. Whatever the, the even resistance end up reproducing uh, marginality and exclusion, and then you know, building on my own ethnographic critique of this cunning anthropological or sociological interpretations of a vicious cycle between action and reproduction, I will try to sketch out the reflection of the kind of politics, the, the closer engagement with open-endedness, desire, and what I call the act of living can potentially inspire. So my ethnographic appreciation of the act of living is contingent to a particular place, Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and time, the decade of Africa rising, and it's specific to the stories of two lives with their particularities of gender, location, and upbringing. The specificity characterized my examination of living, not as a description of indifferentiated and generic features of human existence, but also as the narration of one of many particular ways of experiencing the tension between becoming and history. The particularity of a given realization doesn't limit whatever its relevance. The uniqueness of a story, as Hannah Arendt puts it, tells about the infinite potentialities of living and existence. At the same time, while, while unique existence unfolds in places and times and modes of being in the world, they are shared um, with a wide range of others. So as my work here is about Haile Ibrahim, also as the constituency of urban society they were part of, what I describe as street life, Street life, however, is not just a synonym of whatever happens on the streets. While a street vendor, for instance, might carry out his or her activities on the streets, it doesn't mean that he or she sees herself sharing experiences and actions with others who also occupy the streets, like hustlers or sex workers. What makes the difference is the extent to which people inhabiting the streets recognize themselves as a part of a wide repertoire of memories, practices, collaborations, as well as antagonisms that they describe as street life revolving around hustling and street smartness. So while also doing my research, I also realized that I was occupying a specific sociological niche where interpretation of waiting and waiterhood and assumption about political and social liminalities, often linked to youth, uh, didn't apply. The reason why this interpretation don't apply is a particular sociological dimensions of people acts of waiting, they often goes account unaccounted for and it is that those who wait are often those who can wait. In other words, waiting is viable for those who have access to an economy of exchanges, networks, and transactions 
that enable them to wait for what might be a better um, social opportunities and time than folding of existence towards desired social goals. So while that one applies to specific sociological niche, um, for Haile Brim and many others in my own um, uh, research, waiting was simply uh, not an option. Where you don't have much, my informants taught me, it doesn't make much sense to spend time wondering about the future you wish for and then wait for it to come. And, and this, this is a kind of the question I always get, so um, I'll just put it out there. This is inevitably a story, at least the story I'm telling, is inevitably a story of, of men. Economies of street hustling are inhabited by women, and why the research, by why the research explore street hustling and telling the story of players as smart women and sex workers, or buy the book. But also, we need to be aware that marginality is both produced and lived as a fundamentally gendered experience for both serendipity and choice. I can talk more about in the questions. Um, my ethnography is an exploration of marginality within the gender coordinates of the nexus between subjectivity and, and subjugation, looking at specifically the way policies and intervention aim particularly at regulating and controlling men's behavior um, in the cities uh, and the cities in the country political space. So let me tell you a bit about more about, I will tell you the stories in four, four moments. Um, the first one is the search for smartness. And, Pure chance dictated that Haile Ibrahim were born in poor households in inner city others, uh, and the randomness of birth assigned them to a place shaped by history of political subjugation and marginalization. As many of their friends, Haile Ibrahim were belonged to the first generation of born in Addis Ababa, to families that originated elsewhere. Their parents were among the many who migrated during the 1960s and 1980s. Uh, from the rural area, and they came to constitute the bulk of the population of the city. Wubit, Haile's mother, came from the Amara region, northern Ethiopia, when she was very young. In others, she gradually became involved in commercial sex to support herself and later her sons. And a few years later, Hamed, Ibrahim's father, followed the migration route that historically brought Gurage men from the southern west uh, of, of the country to work as a seasonal workers or traders in others. Ahmed started shining shoes, then became a waiter in a patisserie when he was, has, has been working ever, ever since. So as sons of uneducated rural migrants at the bottom of urban society, Hali Brain could hardly consider themselves uh, well off. Yet the experience of marginality didn't result inevitably from their parents' lack of means. Their parents actually had achieved a small but valid social improvement relative to the radical scarcity of the rural areas they came from, in principle being born in the city uh, within a trajectory of relative social improvement with access, say, to education from which their parents had been excluded, Ibrahim and Haile were a step ahead of their previous generation. However, despite this clear advantage, Haile Ibrahim soon found out that embarking on a trajectory of improvement, at least comparable to their parents, um, was, uh, was difficult or even impossible. As a member of the generation or that came, to, uh, came of age during the socialist regime, they were meant to be beneficiaries of an expanding education system, but the visions of progress and social mobility that long characterized discourses on education were hardly reflected in their own experiences. As Ale put it, school was fake. It was a place to avoid rather than one where a vision of a better future could be cultivated. Ibrahim remembered studying in overcrowded classes led by underpaid and undermotivated teachers. Ibrahim's neighbor, Ibeltal, a minibus driver, 
echoed many disenchanted, resentful recollections of school days. He told me teachers were cold. So leaving school and finding themselves out there looking for ways to get by was a conjuncture of potential change. Engaging in the legal street economy of the suburb in the city provided the Ibrahim and Haile with ways of getting by. So getting by, however, should not simply be considered as a generic attempt to survive. It's the kind of main argument of the book. But spending time on the streets, these young men, when they were young, built their networks as well as elaborated a sense of self-worth revolving around their ideas and practices of street smartness, characterized locally as uh, being uh, Arada. Arada is the name of an inner-city area where Halle Brahim um, grew up and lived. That's where I spent most of my time doing my fieldwork. And this coincidence between the name of a place and idea of smartness is not just a case of homonymy, but expressed the near connection that my informants felt existed between urban history uh, of poverty and scarcity and ideas of smartness and urban sophistication they cultivated. So being a rather voice, the deep fascination they felt with the ability of the hustler, for instance, to make do, and importantly, with his ease or capacity to live smartly through condition of marginality. However, this is not as um, um, straightforward as, as I'm putting it now. Since the 1960s, being a rather denoted the, the sociality that pervaded at the suburbs cafes and bars and restaurants. Now, why the definition of rather is a person of fashion, leisure, and, and style? Um, Arada is a social hero who fights back in a barbro, at least the people were telling me this, often to take side of those who cannot defend themselves, so this kind of narrative of urban uh, smartness and generosity, but also a trickster, a smart person, a man or a woman who knows how to make things happen and sometimes not happen. However, in a city, residents were ready to argue that not all Arada are the same um, and not all Aradas could equally claimed to be true urbanites. There were gentlemen, Arada, people say using the term in America, Dembenya Arada, and Thug Arada, uh, Duri Arada in America. So the Dembenya means like customer, buyer, or even path patron, and convey the sense of properness, uh, manners, gallantry, and style. They made the person a proper urbanite. So being a proper urbanite, a proper Arada, embodied ideas of sophistication in emerging urban middle class made up of students, intellectual artists, singers, members of the aristocracy and government officials claimed for themselves between the 1940s and in the mid-1970s. But so clearly being a thug arada, a, a thug smart person, is a completely different way of understanding ideas of the city. And this idea existed alongside the society of gentlemen and the ideas of sophistication. For my informants, among hustlers, um, among hustlers and thugs, a pickpocket, a con artist, a robber are urbanites because they master the street smartness and street knowledge. Andare, one of my uh, informants, the street tourist guide, we're cheating tourists, uh, uh, told me, Arada are the ones who understand other people. He said, pickpocket is a smart way of being Arada. First, you have to understand the brain of, that, of the person, then his body, then you will choose your target. And similarly, Brain told me, a smart person could also be a criminal. Uh, you already know this. So, in a way, it is what uh, kind of the life experiences and the fact that the middle class idea of urban sophistication coexisted with uh, uh, thug street smartness doesn't tell just about the kind of history of social differentiation in the city, but also the way how 
um, appropriating the term and identity that was central in the way um, um, uh, the city defined ideas of urbanity tells something important about how um, a group of marginalized men in that case tried to um, assert their presence in the urban space while encouraging action amidst exclusion. However, they faced the predicaments they grounded their action in flirtation with street violence and engagement with illicit activities and sometimes criminal offenses. Flirtation with performances of male bravery and physical toughness made street life a gendered place, but also a very violent one. However, thugs uh, might be tough, but not necessarily rough, nor, and nor were they variable rugs. Being recognized as ma thagarada and not just the violent thug meant embodying a certain balance, the though problematic regulated performance of, of street violence. Through this mediated and regulated street violence, street life appealed to men like Hali Brahim, not because it gave them opportunity to be violent or masculine, but it gave marginalized men a way of asserting their presence in the city while obtaining uh, this uh, classic argument a certain degree of respect. However, pointing out this is a how involvement in street life could deliver respect doesn't mean endorsing toughness and street violence as a legitimate grounds for action. Conversely, it means recognize the existential quest and struggle behind it. With Franz Fanon, I read appeal of crime, hustling, and street violence for Harley, Brim, and many others is embedded in a search for somewhere else and for something else. A Fanon analogous, this is not a joke. It can be a struggle in which uh, one must be willing to accept the convulsion of death, invisible dissolution, but also the possibility of the impossible. I argue that this temptation to play with the possibility of the impossible appealed to highly brave and generations of marginalized men before them and involved, because it gave them an opportunity to experiment with what poor people could be and could do in the face of a condition of marginality and exclusion. So being a Radha gave them a language not to question poverty and exclusion, something impossible, but to live bravely through it. So at the end of the 1990s, uh, Ibrahim and Hale experienced street life culminated with the making of their own group, their own, I don't use gang, also because they don't use the term themselves. And it was called Yemot Medib, in Amharic, those who are destined to die. And the group gained certain fame on the streets. Indeed, its name was not self-assumed. People in the neighborhood called them because of their defined style, smoking weed, heavy drinking, as well as the ability of navigating the street uh, economy. So the Yemen Medib, like many other street groups in Addis, uh, didn't last for long, but the mid-early 2000s, just a couple of years after the group was formed, some of its members met the destiny spelled in the name of the group. Wube was among the most youngest in the group. He was just 19 when he was found hanged from the ceiling of his house. Samson and Stefano soon followed when the spread of HIV AIDS hit the inner city. And members of the Yemot Bedib were only the ones to die during those years. Important piece of the history of streets, uh, streets of Rada were vanishing in the, in the early 2000s under the acts of illness, violent deaths, and government uh, repression. So looking back to these days, Ibrahim and Hali remembered the deaths of their close friends seemed both like a warning about the risky inerrance in living a tough life and, to push, uh, and, and, and became a push to find a way out of, uh, of street life. So while Ibrahim and his friends have been struggling to change their lives, that's when I entered in, the, in, in their lives, uh, the Ethiopian economy has been booming and the capital city of Addis Ababa has witnessed a dramatic transformation. 
In the early 1990s, business reports and media accounts portrayed Africa poverty as a threat to rich countries. Ethiopia was, was the symbol, global symbol of famine and, 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 and crisis. But 20 years later, Africa's economic growth is described as bringing the promise of an ongoing expansion of opportunities for investment and wealth across the globe. And because of its success, Ethiopia has been described as a model in development circles and parts of the academic community, growing number of studies in developmental patrimonialism, poverty reduction. I've seen Ethiopian and other African success stories as constituting a political and developmental laboratory for ideas and formulas for growth in the continent. So, uh, for these scholars, Ethiopia, for a while, until recently, was a laboratory for the emergence of, a, of a, an alternative to the neoliberal orthodoxies of the market. However, growth, as you all know, is, is not for all. Social inequalities are on the rise. Political stability and the ability of the ruling party to significantly influence the economy have been historically granted in formal authoritarian politics. Someone will argue that Abiy Ahmed... Um, is challenging that only partly, but we can talk about that a bit later. Um, but then this kind of political stability actually constrains the emergence of political competitors and until recently, but more are still now the ability of ordinary citizens to affect uh, policy. So in a way, economic growth um, and development had offered Ibrahim nothing to build on for their change, for their wish for change. For most of their lives, they occupied the lower tiers of the street economy in some moments wage labor. Only occasionally have they been able to access even the, the higher level street business, such as fencing uh, stolen goods. And the world of a legit business, meanwhile, was for the most part too distant in the horizon of their possibilities. Um, in my interlocutor's reckoning, the economy was dominated uh, by the logic that relatives are with relatives and donkeys are with ashes. They use this proverb, Zemed Kazemedu and Aya Kamdu. This is to say people who are connected are likely to help each other while leaving those who are outside the networks with nothing more uh, than ashes. Development and participation, the buzzwords of, um, of um, government approaches to poverty since the mid-2000s soon became also part of the problem. The cooperatives of parking guys, highly brain work for, were a part of a broader political strategy of the ruling party to capture the unemployed youth after an intense moment of political conflict in 2005. Ibrahim and Haile were among the many who joined government entrepreneurship programs in the years following the, the riots, either out of fear of imprisonment, uh, 2005, 200 people were killed in the streets and 30,000 detained in, other, in, uh, in the capital and other major towns. Other was actually, so they joined other out of fear of imprisonment also to make ends meet. Um, by joining these programs, Haile Ibrahim gained a regular income, but also became dependent on the government, the ruling party for their survival. Even though they were not supporters of the ruling party, they understood that if they wanted to keep their jobs, they were expected, indeed required, to act as supporters and to show up at meetings and rallies. So the implementation of development programs enabled the ruling party to expand its reach in the population, mobilize a significant number of people, and the kind of reach is still there. At the same time, these programs didn't necessarily affect the cleavages that limited Ibrahim and Haile and their peers' access to business networks, as parking guys and government cooperatives. Um, Haile brings the could not embark on trajectories of social mobility. They continue to be marginal actors of the cities and inner city um, economies, while experiencing the increased pervasiveness of the ruling party apparatus of political control. 
So access to inner city business community was fundamentally closed. Ali uh, Ibrahim had the action opportunity, uh, but then lasted for not much time because on one end he was squandering money on the streets when he was selling shoes, but also he didn't have useful networks to build up his, his, uh, his, his luck in a way. So one end business community was closed, development programs failed to provide opportunities for social improvement. However, you know, over the years that I've known them, really the construction of high-rise buildings and increase of ability of resources and, and goods was continued to triggering expectation and desire for social mobility, and they were fascinated by the promises of abundance the city economic growth offered. Yet the persistence of their own marginality made them wonder about the actual foundation of this world's success and power. I had tons of time, Hali Ibrahim and wider circles of friends, peers, neighbors, relatives, men and women, questioning the moral authenticity of wealth and politics. The pillars of the country economic growth has been rounded the selfishness of business people, the cult practice of the rich and uh, super rich, and the fakeness of politics as a site of opportunism and deception. As anthropologist Sasha Nuwa will put it, people I talk to saw development and economic growth as a bluff. Development was a bluff because recognized as the outcome of illicit and moral practices. Business people were described as hustling and cheating, just as hustlers did. Rich people turned to sorcerers to unleash spirits and magic for personal enrichment. And business elites and top politicians were seen as rubbing shoulders and to dodge taxes and accumulate wealth behind the facade of party politics. So this critical account was far from nuanced, uh, was, far, was grounded in rumors and, and perceptions. Yet the critical selfishness and the greed of business people is powerful moral indictment of the logic of the relatives with relatives and donkey with ashes that they saw producing the condition of exclusion. Understanding wealth as embedded in occult practices was a way, of course, making sense of the apparently inexplicable emergence uh, of, of wealth in a country where extreme poverty still existed. The images of business people and politicians rubbing shoulders were grounded in a widely shared perception of intimate connections between politics and business, politics and business in the country. And finally, seeing politics as fake was a way of questioning how celebration of Ethiopian success story remained incommensurable with their own experiences of political subjugation. So philosopher um, Ashil Bembe argued that the post-colony is a site of illicit cohabitation and conviviality, making attitudes towards power and wealth widely shared between the ruled and the rulers. In a similar vein, Sasha Newell showed how Ivorian hustlers saw a sort of continuity between the hustling and the possibility of success, um, presenting this to colleagues who work on Kenya, uh, Kenyan politicians describing themselves as hustlers and be very proud of that. But in a city that the Sababa shows a very radically different reality. Uh, no doubt, Hali Ibrahim and many others, people in my field site, wanted to be rich and powerful. Uh, I guess I, I shared their desire as well. But the existence of a critic of power, wealth, and success reveals how my interlocutors saw a fundamental incommensurability between the spaces of the existence and the logic that delivered success. I like the Ivorian hustlers or the Kenyan uh, hustlers. My informants felt they could not join the bluff of development and economic growth. Sure, they were hustling and bluffing is the domain of the hustler, but also felt they didn't have the resources to play the big game of faking and cheating that they saw rich people playing. As Ibrahim put it, we are chebeta, like squeezed. We gamble with no money, we don't have opportunities, 
We don't have a past, a present, or a future. So they thought there was a big divide between the small hustling of the survivors and the big cheating of the wealthy. And that divide could not be crossed. Meanwhile, in the inner city others, the inability of hustlers to join the bluff of the wealth and the powerful resulted in actually questioning of the actual smartness of the street arada, the thug arada. An increasing, as an increasing number of people turned towards the vision of abundance and wealth that the city offered to elaborate ideas of desirable and achievable futures, my informants witnessed actually wider questionings of their own claim to smartness. Many in the inner city have begun to argue that the arada, the smart people, are no longer those who can live smartly through poverty and scarcity, but those who are smart enough to get away from it. This emerging conceptualization, the arada, the urbanites, are those who become rich and not those who um, remain poor. So this questioning of the smartness of the arada in the face of the bluffing of the powerful provided the reason why um, my informants were so concerned of uh, questioning the morality of, of development. My informant's critique of economic growth was an attempt to recapture a sense of self-worth to recognition of the moral ambiguities, that the moral ambiguities of their own hustling was nothing compared to the, what politicians and business people were believed to be accumulating behind the facade of development and politics. So in these circumstances, my, what my informants felt they could do was to call the bluff, uh, naming it as something other than themselves. So characterizing power and wealth as something other However, it was not follow, followed by a sort of internalization of embodiments of, of the powerful other, as you know, most of the kind of debate, kind of uh, studies of the marginalized and oppressed in post-colonial Africa tend to argue. Conversely, by recognizing the bluff as something other than themselves, by informants sought to exercise, externalize, or most simply morally and existentially disengage from what they regard as, regard as to be the source of the condition of social exclusion. Such moves didn't naturalize and challenge the status quo, yet they became, it became self-elaboration of a critique that informed how Hali Ibrahim um, positioned themselves in wider society and questioned the limits imposed on them by patterns of social differentiation and political authoritarianism. So by calling the bluff and morally distancing themselves from the forces producing their condition of oppression and subjugation, Mentalocutors made themselves into what anthropologists Penny Harvey and Hannah Knox described as an impossible public. Impossible publics are characterized by their rights, a politics of refusal enacted by those who, whose modes or arguments, step outside the frame of established, established debates altogether. So they were speaking a completely different language, and kind of the work of my ethnographist kind of understands um, where the language came from. So the protagonists, the protagonists of this book, define their position in society in relation of in relation of incommensurability with the narratives and discourses that pervaded the country development. However, their critique was not just oppositional; it also attempted also to reimagine ways of reengaging with these imaginaries of improvements the current logics of power and wealth denied to them. An impossible public is not always inevitably a counter-public. Expression of hostility, refusal, aversion, and claims of incommensurability also reflect an underlying search for being otherwise engaged with the desires and aspirations from which marginalized people are, remain excluded. So elaborating a moral indictment of the sources of their predicament was central in the way my interlocutors sought to um, restate the possibility for being somewhere else and for something else. 
So such kind of critique can potentially be immobilizing, or rather lead to recognition of the inevitability of subjugation and oppression, and the possibility of action and hope. Uh, that's what, you know, Schilbenbeck brought the way how understanding the politics as a site of dissimulation and false compliance might result in a mutual zombification, he writes, uh, of the powerful and the weak, the way in which, he writes, this zombification means that each, each the powerful and the weak rob the other of their vitality and leaving them both impotent. <clears throat> and on the streets of inner city, this over the 10 years I've been working on, um, the heaviness of constraints imposed on my interlocutor's action and the sense of inevitability that pervaded the experience of subjugation and exclusion were often so overwhelming that immobility, self-destruction, or even death appeared inevitable or even desirable. Um, some tragedy succumbed to this over the 10 years. I've heard tons of stories of suicides and, um, and recognition of the nature, the reason of such a pain is very important. The kind of the classic ways of understanding this is to understand kind of pain and self-destruction and mobility as a result of precariousness or inability to um, imagine what next. For my interlocutors, however, uncertainty, the idea of not knowing was next, uh, was perceived as enabling them to think of their lives as something else, paradoxically. What was known was actually bleak and overwhelming distress, overwhelmingly distressing, because it didn't give them grounds for imagining a better life. Pain, anxiety, and madness were interpreted by the way, by a potential obsession of making sense of what they saw and they knew and experienced. For instance, the death of Fantaoun um, came as a huge shock to many. Fantaoun was in his mid-twenties, he spoke very good French, so they learned on the Alliance Francaise in others. And many people among his friends and acquaintances knew that he was a heavy drinker and he should actually stop drinking. He kept drinking uh, Arakia, very local, local brandy, and for this reason many thought he died. The interpretation was that Fantaoun drank himself out of existence. His death was taken to be a consequence of chinket. He was thinking too much. Friends who had died or gone mad were most dramatic reminded of the potential consequences of too much thinking. People created ways of living through anxiety about the reversibility of their condition of poverty. Uh, Abraham appealed to his ability to forget. He told me, I was quite stressed, I was getting sick, it was the end of my fieldwork before coming here to Oxford. He told me, you know, it's nice that you think about what you need to do, but don't do it too much. People get crazy for much, for, for much thinking. I like my brain, he said. It's incredible. I can forget things. This makes things easier. So forgetting, exercising one capacity to deal with problems were components of a form of social reflexivity, a discipline of the self. There was grounded recognition that we are thrown in the world without control of the circumstances of our existence. For my informants, the existential choice was not just to be or not to be, but to do something or to do nothing. And being in the world or slipping away from it through madness or death was perceived to be dependent on this ability to deal with this dilemma. So when not knowing what was next was a um, reason to have hope. What they hoped for was to achieve change, but though they conceptualized the change remains uh, unspecified. So in anthropology, there is an increasing concern with the study of the future and the imagination of the future. Padurai talks about ideas of the good life. And my informants had a clear idea of the good life, which was you know, on the high-rise steel and glass buildings dotting other suburban landscape. 
They did dream about wealth and success, but didn't spend much thinking about that, uh, how their life could be. In a context where abundance of wealth were unreachable and explicable, visions of the good life were rarely imagined as an actual plans to pursue in the, uh, in the present and the future. The possibility of achieving a better life in the future was dependent on chances and not dreams. Um, a chance is, is a definition, is a stroke of fortune, um, an event on a series of events, which is unpredictable, uh, but when happens, it will take your life in a direction you will not expect it. They use the term in Amharic, idyll. However, why interesting, why the idea of success of change where unspecified, the notion of chance was very precise. It's grounded in a deep configuration of meanings revolving around relations with God and morality. A chance, as I understood, is a gift of God. Such as de- because it's dependent on God's inscrutable will. So it might be argued that predictability of existence is therefore an expression of the inscrutability of God and the fact that what will happen, only God knows. Yet it doesn't mean that individuals are powerless. My informants believed that they, what they could do was to cultivate a good relationship with God by signaling their loyalty to Him with prayers and religious acts. But however, gaining God's favor was not an easy thing to do, especially all the things they were doing, they were, you know, that past present involvement in legal street life, they stolen, cheated, hustled, and this was, they were aware of not something they could present, or, uh, in, could be proud of in front of God. So how could they reconcile their ability to uh, gain the favor of God, the dispense of chances? One, of course, was to pray, to um, a good relationship with God through religious acts, going to church, if they were Christians, and be committed to know about Islam, as Muslim Ibrahim did. On top of their commitment to religious life, my informants also turned to an exercise of moral reflexivity. And the conversation I had with them about how they evaluated their deeds echoed what philosophers debated about moral luck. Whether or not what people do in a situation outside their control can be an object of moral judgment. So they argued that their bad acts were a result of the contingencies of their lives, as such no subject to clear moral judgment. They didn't choose to be poor, and they believed when you are poor, you need to do what you need to do in order to get by. So by recognizing the limits of the action, or rather by arguing they didn't have control of the circumstances of their lives, my informants thought of themselves as moral subjects um, who could rightfully claim a chance um, from God. <laughs> of course, this is kind of this. Then on that base, they knew that they had work, they knew that they had work to do. So being able to get the chance was fundamentally a matter of inhabiting then the contingency of lives, as they put it, was a matter of moving around in Kasekase, and my informants kept moving. The cooperative parking guys, for instance, is still there, but many of its members, including Harley Bream, have been trying to find a way out of it, either by funding replacements to work for them and continue to receive a share of the salary, or by asking the government to give them money uh, as part of the capital the cooperative parking guys had, had saved. Ibrahim found a replacement to work for him at the cooperative, handing him two-thirds of his salary at the end of the month and keeping the difference. This gave him more time and enabled him to combine his one-third salary with his second-hand mobile phone business. At the same time, however, his income was not very different, but the fact that he, the arrangements made him feel that he was free to consider other options. I eventually quit the cooperative without getting a share of the capital he has saved over the years. 
He decided to pull resources with his sister to open a little container shop in the streets within the government scheme of small-scale commercial activities. In 2015, Haile was taking, uh, talking about his family shop with pride and excitement. He was selling small items from chewing gums to uh, bottles of water. Unfortunately, by 2017, Haile moved um, about his family shop and radically changed, realized that the family shop has simply replaced one uh, meager income with another. The prospects of achieving life part two, as he put it, uh, was still out of reach. But my informants um, kept, kept moving. So talking about the challenges of, of his life, uh, Ibrahim told me, uh, and this is the kind of the base of, you know, like kind of the most important quote for me to think about this. So living is the most important thing. Uh, we have this life, we live it. For Ibrahim and many others, was stories are you know, telling the book, living was important because staying alive was the ultimate condition for being able to turn the unexpected and uncertain into a uh, possibility. It gave them the sense that they still have a time to uh, transform their life and think their life otherwise. Um, with this analysis, I join an existing ethnographic critique to anthropological kind of temptation to, um, to use uh, Aristotle, I, I don't know how to pronounce it in English, I say in Italian, uh, distinction between a life of just living and a life of actions. Philosophers such as Agamben, for instance, have argued that the desire to be and persist is easily exploited and exploitable. This is because when life assumes an intrinsic value and survival becomes the main concern of the subject, the individual is caught into mechanism governing the reproductions of regimes or subjugation. By narrating, I mean, I strongly disagree with the way of thinking. I argue that there is not much gain, much to gain in making a distinction between a life of just living and a life of action. Getting by and surviving are not just mere experiences or letting oneself breathe but they are what ultimately enable the actualization of existence as a site of possibility. We can root my informant's search for open-endedness as illusory, fatalistic, or worse, a form of a false consciousness. Uh, be my guest, there is a long tradition of sociological philosophical thoughts that either portray people's desires and impediment to action, or seen limited purpose in investigating how social actors understand their own action. Um, in a recent book, uh, Cruel Optimism, um, uh, Berlant, I mean, I'm very bad at pronouncing names. Um, she basically, but then she compared the mode of existence, the, the kind of things I'm writing about, as uh, potential uh, symptoms of an attachment to visions and desire of a better life, which are cruel, because wittingly or wittingly, they are obstacles to the actual ability to achieve one's dreams. If you go to French sociology, Bourdieu would argue that uh, as highly brain. Uh, moved around, the choices they made and trajectories they embarked on to pursue their quest for social mobility wittingly and unwittingly contributed to the reproduction of their own condition of, of marginality. Surely in a city of the Sababa, my informant's engagements uh, with street economy and notions of street smartness emerge in opposition uh, um, of experience of exclusions and and street hustlers in Arada were faced with the fact that the engagement with hustling and cheating is madness and not taking them anywhere. However, it's important to not assume that my, um, uh, my informants, in the case and more generally, the sense of the possible, the fact that the sense of the possible coincides with social position. Or that there is a coincidence, that the co potential coincidence is the independent variable um, uh, in the reproduction of, of, of marginality and exclusion. 
argue that the position of people occupied don't necessarily and fully determine the understandings of society and the self, or rather, while the sense of what people can and cannot do is elaborated through their own experience of power relations, this doesn't mean that constraints and exclusion are naturalized and internalized. I argue that we need to take desires and action, identity, and inspiration seriously. We should not give in to the temptation to claim a sort of uh, allegiance to any of the sides of the long term and resolve debates about um, structure and agency. We should inhabit analytically and ethnographically the tensions that pervade existence of our interlocutors. The subject attempt to, become, to be become something else than their constraints while living in existence that is firmly embedded in experience of subjugation. The structural agency debates, you know, talking about this is such a 1990s thing to do, but remains unresolved because the tension the discussion seeks to make sense of doesn't have an historical final synthesis. This attention remains as such because the subject is neither fully determined by power nor fully determining of power. The tension and ambivalence remains fundamentally unresolved, making the experience of tries to be something else than one constraints, a painful one. Yet as these tensions and these uh, endures unresolved because people's stubborn acts of moving around, is a fertile terrain for elaboration of a repertoire of practices for living, assessing, criticizing, hiding, and bypassing. It was through this repertoire that my informants granted the act of living into a very cruel sense of realism, externalized power as something other than themselves, and distanced themselves from what they identified to be the sources of their predicaments. So, the question is, so what? Why have I been torturing you uh, for, for, for an hour uh, about this? So, um, so I still have time, so I need to tell you so what. So, um, so if Yeb is going through a process of political reform and opening, led by the new Prime Minister, Abi Ahmed, members of opposition parties have been released from prison and um, restriction of media and civil society lifted, resulting in a wave of optimism, hope across the country. Whether these reforms will entail a radical rethinking of Ethiopia's developmental model, uh, and whether the greater enjoyment of political rights will also result in increased ability of people at the bottom of urban society and rural society to affect policy is uh, unclear. So, um, Ibrahim, when I've been, actually when I was writing the book, uh, was uh, finished in the last bits, was March 2008. That's when uh, Abi then uh, came into, uh, into the picture, then I basically flew into others. And the first person I met was, of course, Ibrahim, and he told me, I was stressing about Abi and how to pull that into the book. And Abi said, look, he's a good speaker, but if you ask me, it's like when you move your teapot from one fire to another. Um, and this sentence kind of reflected much of the skepticism that populated the streets in, uh, in the city others. Ibrahim and many others were skeptic because they recognized that this moment of change, while being kind of, in a way, beautiful, didn't necessarily result in the proliferation of chances that could indeed boost their search for open-endedness. Someone will say, you know, this takes time, but, you know, our, but also uh, is an opportunity for us to think about, you know, what we make of these experiences and whether we can actually, um, anthropology can, or our ethnographies can be part of a, of a, the making of a politics, let's say, of open-endedness. We can do that, you know, like, by just basically combining this demands for, for a chance into, into um, an imagination of politics. 
Uh, we can do by just the first thing, which is kind of a step, is the fact that uh, we need to start questioning the very idea that development concern revolves around enabling the poor to help themselves um, out of poverty and take advantage of the expansion of the economy. Uh, Amartya Sen capabilities approach, or in anthropology, Padurai capacities to aspire, have failed the poor. Instead, we need to tune intervention into a commitment to provide opportunities of continuous improvement. Mantia Lucas' understanding of the act of living is central here. Living is a fertile terrain for the elaboration of concerns, aspiration, and expectation. They are central for the imagination of the political as the pursuit of justice and as a collective project to achieve a fair distribution of opportunities. Harry Brame and many others learned to understand that living in the city is revolving around the efforts to achieve a form of relative yet significant improvement. They expected to be better placed than their parents and they hoped to enable their children to live a better life than they did. So the search for open-endedness is an attempt to fulfill, the way I read it, a sort of generational duty of incremental improvement. And what was actually uh, kind of the were concerned about is the fact that economic growth was not enabling them to fulfill the generational duty. Um, pursuing responsiveness to these claims for open-endedness, the demands for continuous improvements, would imply questioning the long-held idea that many objectives, that the main objectives of social policy are to change poor people's minds, penalize the unworthy and the lazy, and help the deserving poor to, um, to help themselves out of poverty. Um, responsiveness uh, rests on the idea that tackling poverty and exclusion requires a collective effort to question the political and social hierarchies of worth, which produce subjugation and exclusion. Such is a straightforward cause for a political redistribution which targets poor people as a members of society and not as bearers of some form of commendable or reprehensible morality. Uh, over 10 years I spent investigating and I see the others, I witnessed highly Ibrahim and many others expressing tons of claims and demands to NGOs and government institutions were promptly unaddressed. From giving a pot of money to each member of the parking cooperative to launch their own ventures in the informal economy, to replace uh, doomed skill training programs uh, into employment-oriented initiatives focused on cooking or driving, all of them cast aside because others seem to be impossible or irrelevant. So responding to these claims and demands entails a commitment to transform the search for open-endedness in trajectory of social improvement. And turning open-endedness sense is less about a vision of the ideal future, as many my informants understood with their quest for open-endedness. There's not much point in prefiguring a vision of the future. It didn't work for them, and it doesn't work when visions of the future uh, function as a justification for political authoritarianism in the present. There is very idea that you know you, you need to have certain decades of political authoritarianism, then this develop produce development, and then economic growth, and economic growth will solve everything. There's a language that uh, was quite resilient uh, in the times of Meles Zenawi and Ale Mariam de Salen, and still there with Abiy Ahmed. Instead, what is required is the elaboration of a method that can get us closer to the realization of something better, moving us away from normative understanding of developments. Um, and when the better is not just a trade-off, but something imagined, discussed, and debated, and pursued openly and collectively, um, we reach the moments, potentially, uh, when uh, uh, a better world is coming to be. Okay, thanks.